Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are continuing our coverage of The Dream of a Ridiculous Man by Fyodor Dostoevsky from 1877. We are reading the English translation done by Richard Pevere and Larissa Volokonsky. This was published by the Modern Library in 1997. This is the second episode. It's the discussion episode. And I think there's an awful lot to discuss here. There really is. Uh, I'll also point out here that this is an episode that was commissioned to us by a very generous patron. So thank you so much. I think we've really enjoyed doing this story so far. I think our discussion is going to be pretty fun too. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much for this. And uh, I'm excited. So let's uh, let's just get into it, Brandon. Where do you want to start? Well, there's one thing I want to say at the top of the show here. In reading this story, I was really struck by how another author I really like and keep recommending on the network, maybe infrequently, especially to our audience who who likes more of the lighthearted philosophical speculation we get up to, how that author is deeply influenced by the way that Dostoevsky conceives of some of the problems of humanity that we really see on uh, display in this story. I'm talking about Walker Percy. I'm just going to recommend him again. I know that he was a big reader of Dostoevsky, but he's much more comedic. And I'm mentioning him in part because I think some of the ways that I am approaching this story and thinking about this story is going to end up being filtered through the way that Walker Percy approaches some of the ideas found here, uh, particularly the notion of the self being abstracted from the self. I don't know how much we're going to get into that, but if this is an idea that interests you, maybe you should dive into Walker Percy. Yeah, you've you've been giving me this recommendation for years, <laughs> and I, I have not I have not done it yet, but someday. Yeah, it's a tough sell, right? Uh, but anyway, th- this story has enough troubles of its own that we need to talk about. And I think it would be best to start with what's on the page and then move into the more you know abstract, theological, and other concepts that Dostoevsky is exploring. So the first thing I want to do is approach this story as a piece of a psychological realism. We talked a little bit about this in our recap episode, uh, about the way that Dostoevsky is representing depression. But Glenn, you know, did you feel really as though the narrator's despair and anguish, his cynicism and depression were able to stand on their own, apart from the kind of transformation narrative that they're couched in? In other words, how did you respond to the narrator pre-dream when you read this story? Was it believable? It was totally believable and also totally sympathetic. I mean, I, I had no idea where this story was going. Dostoevsky is a famous writer whose works are taught in uh, in literature classes around the world. I have you know been in some of those classes, though. Uh, you have done the major novels, of course, right, and not not the short fiction. So I didn't know where this was going and I resisted the urge to to you know look it up to read I don't know the some sort of summary or listen to someone else's podcast episode about this story or something like that. So I really had no idea where this was going until we were about halfway through. And so the opening chapter especially and the, the second chapter as well, I thought this was going in a totally different place than it was and and thought that we were about to get a pretty deep exploration of the ugliness of Dostoevsky's contemporary society by showing us that society rather than by showing us its kind of opposite and then the corruption of that uh, idyllic, uh, Edenic uh, society. And 
I was I was here for it. I I was really invested in the narrator's experience of his world, the kind of emptiness and hollowness of it. And I was also really here for the way that Dostoevsky was quietly tying this psychological despair that the narrator is feeling with the major changes to the materiality of civilization and the accompanying social changes that are happening in the 19th century with industrialization and the the rise of global capitalism. I loved the way that Dostoevsky was putting those two things together without necessarily calling our attention to it and just giving us lots of details about what life is like for this narrator in St. Petersburg in the 1870s. And I would not have minded more of it. No, it's amazing. I really thought it was brilliant the way that Dostoevsky was able to give us this really realistic portrait of um, a person suffering with depression, slowly coming to move from blaming the society they live in for the way they feel to take on this sort of extra moral load that they hadn't really encountered before. That really all stems from this encounter with someone who really needs their help, that they cast off a child even. And I thought it was really realistic uh, and, and just so well observed. I mean, an another thing as a craft note that Dostoevsky did here was describe the narrator's perceptions, you know, of his friends and of the world, you know, that gaslight passage that we read in a way that adds to the sense that this character is living in a real place and that his perceptions are coloring his sense of that place more than just this abstract description. I felt bad. The world stinks, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's very grounded in, as you pointed out, Glenn, the materiality here. And I think if we were to story doctor this story, which I'm not really interested in doing, but one thing I might do is have Dostoevsky do something similar with the post transformation or conversion part of the stories, like to have the engineers back and have a concrete example of the narrator being ridiculed, being an object of ridicule rather than kind of feeling that burden himself, have a, have a grounded conversation or example rather than just the more abstract people made me ridiculous because of the utopia I experienced. Yeah, I think that's a criticism that I I agree with, Brandon. This story felt like it ended rather abruptly, and I might have liked a little more of a, a return to the world in which we began. I mean, there's a real uh, sense, I guess not technically, right? But there's a real feeling like this story has a frame around it, right? Like the, the core of the story is this uh, journey to Earth 2 or dream of a journey to Earth 2. And then we have this introduction at the beginning that is set in our real world. I would have liked more of a return to that so that it would have felt kind of balanced, would have, I guess, made it feel more like a frame story, which uh, I know I, at least on the air, am I'm usually a champion of in a, a a world, I think, that has has done done away with frame stories for the most part. And I would have liked one more, I guess. Yeah, it would have been, I think, really impactful to get a sense of how the narrator feels about the starry sky now or how he feels about the light shining on the world now through gaslights or whatever to really uh, drive home that transformation that the narrator claims to have experienced. That's all like whatever. The point is, 
Dostoevsky writes depression really well. I think we we all know that if you've read Dostoevsky, I would have liked more on the other side, but that's a that's a minor critique. The the next thing I want to ask you, Glenn, you know, thinking about ways to approach this story is about how this story worked for you as a conversion story. The narrator is miserable. He just like walks around and bumps into people on the street because maybe he doesn't even believe they really exist. It makes no difference. He skips dinner, you know, a, a lot. He probably doesn't eat three meals a day. This to me could have been a symbol of fasting, but I, I think it was more a, a reality effect. He thinks his friends are boring because they're just, you know, their conversation just seems to him like rhetorical posturing and then he refuses to take action and he actively makes life worse for someone who desperately needs his help. And then he has this dream. So the first real question, I guess, is what is it in your understanding of the story that leads this character to have this dream in the first place? And do you think that the dreams such as we get about the narrator being a corrupter of innocence and beauty and love would lead to the types of transformations and realizations that the narrator has about the purpose in his life. Well, let me start by saying that I, I love that you're characterizing this as a, a conversion story. I, it's not really a word that appears in, in the text at all. And in fact, there's nothing explicitly religious in the text either. Uh, I, I mean, you know, and I'm going to draw a, a line there between, you know, religion or religiosity and and spirituality here. He clearly has a, a sort of numinous spiritual experience, but there's no structure to that. There's no sort of religious edifice a, around that. You know, we, uh, we can infer quite a bit of that, but there's nothing there in the text, right? But nonetheless, this does very much feel like and read like a conversion story. This is someone who has a kind of epiphany and then now is going to be a different person, right? Con he has literally, you know, turned towards uh, something else, right? That's the the, the verse in, in conversion is a, a, a turning, right? But something that jumped out to me, Brandon, even just about the way that you were uh, phrasing your, your question here that I, I think I would like us to deal with before we get into really kind of the heart of what you're asking is, is simply to think about the extent to which this dream is a dream or if this dream is actually some kind of numinous experience. Is it possible that although this takes on the form of a dream for the narrator, that he is actually being guided by God or some other supernatural being towards either an, a very actual Earth 2 or at least to a vision of this other Earth? I guess really just, is this just a, a random dream that this person had the way that, I don't know, I had a random nightmare about taking out my recycling this week because that's what it means <laughs> to be a middle-aged person in the suburbs, I guess. Uh, is that the sort of thing that's going on here? Or has he been the recipient of something from some other agency in the universe? I really wanted to avoid this question uh, <laughs> because <laughs> there's a really, to me, troubling line in the story that kind of undermines or maybe is carelessly placed and maybe I feel should have been edited out where the narrator says something like, all the world's a dream. Like, this world's a dream too. Earth One is a dream. And to me, that's just a, a, a misplaced sentiment in this story because whose dream is it? 
then, right? And it kind of creates this huge complex problem of consciousness and reality that to me is not what this story is about. But in the spirit of answering the question and ignoring that line and pretending I've edited it out, I think that the narrator is having a mystical experience, at least in the sense that he is encountering through a mystical state, through a dream state, God or an angel, uh, even though Christianity is never mentioned, you know, uh, Dostoevsky was a, a Russian Orthodox, that this narrator is having a true experience that is also a dream, but it's very real. That's my take on it. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, I think that that is certainly right, that whether or not this is just a dream in some sense is kind of inconsequential because it feels very vivid, very real to the the narrator. And I, I really sympathize with, with that. I won't I, I won't go into details here on the air, but I had a, a, a nightmare years ago that lingered with me for, for years that uh, Elizabeth and I joke about now, but that I, there just was a reality in that dream that, that, that was only in that dream. It didn't exist in the real world, but there would just be moments in my life where I would feel like I, I would just wonder what happened to our daughter who was kidnapped by ninjas who never yeah. existed, you know, but like that dream was so vivid that years later, it still sometimes felt like that was a real experience to me. So, you know, I, I, I totally understand what Dostoevsky is getting here. Right. I think that that experience that you had, and I've had many like them, I mostly my dreams will linger for if I have a super vivid Earth 2 type dream, it'll it might linger for several hours, half a day to like 3 p.m. where I wake up and I, I'm convinced I I'm in the wrong world, basically. You know, I woke up into a dream. But I think that experience perfectly captures this notion of the living image that Dostoevsky, that Dostoevsky or the narrator is talking about here. And that that living image of Earth 2 is so powerful and so vivid and so real that it, it won't dissipate. It won't go away uh, in the way that, you know, your non-existent daughter being captured by ninjas uh, will eventually dissipate. We hope. Yeah, I, I do hope. <laughs> I do hope. Uh, really, actually, largely has dissipated since now I have an actual child. So, that it's, uh, who as as of yet not kidnapped by ninjas. Though to be clear, there are ninja traps all over the house because I'm I'm worried about it. <laughs> it's, it's a real it's a real thing for me. But uh, but yeah, Dostoevsky does a great job with this, and certainly whether or not. It was a dream or, you know, just sort of randomness of neurons firing in your brain while you're asleep or an actual message from God. Um, maybe it doesn't matter to the to the narrator. But I think from our external standpoint, you know, what does Dostoevsky want us to, to understand uh, or to, to think about the actual agency or the involvement of God here might matter. But perhaps, you know, we, we, we can shelf that and maybe revisit it after we've talked a little bit more about like the, the, the actual substance of the dream and how it impacts the narrator. But you had asked, Brandon, what is the impetus for this dream? You know, especially if we are thinking of this just in terms of this is what your brain is doing while you're asleep to make process uh, or to make sense of rather to process the things that have happened throughout your day. I mean, I think we have to go back to just exactly what the narrator says, which is th that this encounter with this little girl was a, a catalyst for him. 
And we can see that in the way that he describes the people of Earth too, by referring to them as childlike, where you know having this this childlike uh, innocence, and you know so that's a link there where he's thinking about a child, uh, thinking about these people as as loving one another, but but also thinking about these people as not suffering physically. And I think all of these things are represented by this little girl who is suffering, has someone in her life who is suffering, and she herself is powerless to do anything about it. And she can't get an adult to pay attention to her to come help her. And that includes the narrator who not only blows her off, even shouts at her to go away. And that has gnawed at him nod at him subconsciously and I think manifested in this dream. Right. And, 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 you know, the, the people in this early state before he corrupts them, uh, he describes, as you pointed out, as children, but also children of the sun. And there's that return of that, that light imagery that we saw with the gaslights and with the star. I mean, the star image to me is so vivid. This pinpoint of, of light in the night sky that literally illuminates nothing. It's such a such a unique image, I think, to to me. And I know when I came across it, I was just it, it, I found it to be arresting with this other description of the gaslight that the narrator wishes the lights were turned off so he didn't have to see anything. The the way that the rain has and the, the combination of the rain and then also just like industrial pollution has just like made this place ugly. And then looking up and seeing a light in the sky illuminate nothing and then being encou- encountering this little girl who needs his help and knowing he can help and thinking of knowledge as a kind of light and then shutting that n- light off, going home and deciding to turn all the lights off. To, I mean, I just, the way Dostoevsky's working with light here is pretty amazing. I wish he would have followed it through to the end of the story, but I, I don't know. I don't know why I went on that rant. I just, it really struck me, you know, when you mentioned children, I remember that phrase, children of the sun. And I, I think it's a uh, kind of a really brilliant use of these, these images of light and darkness in, in this story. Well, and certainly images of light and darkness are all over human religions. You know, almost almost all of them have some concept of of light and darkness in in some way. And so, yeah, it's no accident, right, that Dostoevsky is using that language, that imagery here uh, in this conversion story, right? I mean, even you know, a phrase that we often use to describe someone who has had a conversion is they have seen the light. And in this case, yes, Dostoevsky has seen the light. All right. Well, let's talk about the society of the dream world. The narrator describes an Edenic world without sickness and disease. There's abundant food. Even death seems like it's not too bad of a deal. The people in this world love one another, and they've really cornered the market on kumbaya-type songs. Did the narrator still thinks that somehow the fact that these people have not discovered science is a credit to their harmony and unity as a people. Elsewhere in the story, we see science held up alongside progress, self-preservation, and wisdom. And all of these are sorts of negatives. Uh, negative, these ideas, these as they become ideologies, have these negative grips on society. You know, one of the first things we learn about the people on Earth, too, is that they figured out how to live without science. And 
you know, I guess progress is another really important word here. So first of all, Glenn, I really wonder what you made of this emphasis on science here and how you felt it played into the narrator's dream of an ideal world. Yeah, this is an awesome question. And this is an awesome story. One of the things I just want to say at the front, though, as we're getting into this world of the dream, that uh, I don't feel qualified to talk about this story. I mean, you know, uh, neither of us is really experts in anything we ever talk about. It doesn't usually <laughs> stop us. But I think in this case, especially, I really don't feel like I've got a, a great handle on on Dostoevsky, uh, the, the world that he inhabits, and, and how he might be experiencing that and thinking about that. And it differs from the types of stories that we normally cover here on the show in that this is not a story that is coming from the Anglophone world, right? We overwhelmingly read stories that are written in English. We, we have read other stories in translation before and have some more on the docket, which I'm very excited about. But for the most part, we read stories that are written either in the, the UK, somewhere in the UK, uh, or you know the European part of the British Empire, or in Anglo North America, and those are places I have lived, <laughs> and there is a context in which uh, with which I am familiar. But here now we're getting the story of the dramatic changes of the 19th century with the rise of industrialism. Uh, actually, the industrial revolution largely complete, or at least the first phase of it largely complete by the time that Dostoevsky writes this story. The dramatic changes that come with uh, the invention of capitalism and then its extension to the globe and so on. We're seeing that in a context that I'm not all that familiar with. And what I mean by that is that we're getting this story in a context or in the context of a society in which those developments are not homegrown, that those developments are uh, imports from elsewhere, imports from the British Empire, essentially, though also Germany at this point as well, uh, imports from elsewhere uh, or copies from elsewhere. And so there is another layer wrapped up here in which Dostoevsky is not merely looking around at his society and saying, I don't think that these changes are good, though he's clearly doing that. He's also seen that these changes have actually been done self-consciously, where someone in London at this point, or really it would, be probably, it would probably be more accurate to think about someone in London 30 or 40 years previously, looking around and saying, this doesn't seem like a great society. How did we get to this point and what can we do about it? Because those changes were happening uh, or organically uh, as the results of developments in that society, as opposed to the importation, sort of wholesale, or I guess piecemeal, but the importation nonetheless from someplace else. And so for Dostoevsky, this is actually a world that has been changed through the agency of his political leadership. The political leadership of the Russian Empire has decided that we should live this way now. And uh, so and so there's, I think, even more of an edge, actually, to what Dostoevsky is thinking about here than we normally get in the types of stories that we cover that are either set here in the 19th century or that are reflecting back on it. I, I think that's right. I think one of the main concerns of Dostoevsky's in relation to science in particular here and the way that science kind of informs people's notions of progress is the idea of ideological possession. I mean, he wrote a novel called Demons, which is really just about this. I, I read a great article this week by English professor and uh, essayist who I really 
enjoy. I always find him to be kind of intelligent and thought provoking named Alan Jacobs. I brought him up on the network before he wrote another essay for the new Atlantis where he talks just about this type of, uh, Possession, ideological possession, or just general possession, which in which we feel as individuals as though our agency is overridden by, he uses the phrase powers and principalities, which, you know, comes from uh, Paul. Uh, our agency is overridden by these things, and we're not really on guard against them. And so we become agents in like the secret agent sense, working for these ideologies and so kind of lose ourselves. We'd say we do things that that's not like me. I would never do that. I don't know why I did that. He uses, for example, the um, recent reports uh, and interviews from what was called the QAnon shaman who was on January 6th, uh, who was one of the you know main symbols of that insurgency uh, saying now in prison, I don't know why I did that. That doesn't seem like me kind of really distancing himself from that, uh, those actions. And so we have not just the sense of ideological possession, um, but another way to describe it is science in the way it's used in this story has become a tool that allows us to distance ourselves from ourselves and to detach ourselves from our actions in service of something that isn't really leading to our own flourishing. The systems, in other words, not just industrialization, but also governmental systems have gotten too big for us to really take responsibility for our own sense of flourishing. And I think, at least in some sense, that's what Dostoevsky is looking at here. These people, without science on Earth 2, before Dostoevsky teaches them to lie, or the narrator, are flourishing perfectly because they found a way to live in harmony and tend to each other and the world through a certain kind of worship of being. And I think the narrator is looking at that as a kind of ideal, even though he never mentions uh, the un the they what they really worship, what they're really in communion with, is the entirety beyond the universe. And Dostoevsky is looking around at his own world and and the changes that have come to it uh, that have been intentionally imported as well, and seeing the nineteenth century cult of science or the the worship of progress, uh, in which progress is just a, a euphemism for, for change that of, of any kind, really, and seeing that this is not really a world that he wants to, to live in. And I think in particular, what he's showing us here as an alternative on Earth, too, uh, is that all of the technological change and the abundance of of food and, and products that have come about as a result of that have created a really sophisticated society and in fact have in some ways created the idea of society but have done so at the expense of community and what i mean by that is that because we have so much sophistication and so much specialization in our world we can get really any kind of good or product or really any kind of service that we require but we do it in such 
loneliness, such alienation, where we don't really necessarily know our neighbors or have any need to know our neighbors because they don't provide directly a service to me. Uh, I might make use of their service in some other way. You know, they perform some job that is useful for society as a whole, but I don't ever have to interact with them because I don't require them, I don't require their immediate presence for my material needs, right? The, my neighbor is not the person who has the mill that grinds up the grain that I've grown that then allows me to turn it into bread in my home, for example. That's, that's what I mean here, right? And that that has done away, those changes have done away with community in which neighbors do know each other because they are all immediately dependent on each other for their material existence. And I think that that type of arrangement uh, is what Dostoevsky is sort of pining for, right? He wants to return to community uh, rather than have the sort of anonymity of society. Right. And particularly the way it's presented in this story, uh, Dostoevsky is examining what has happened in our society that allows us to ignore people who have fallen into a state of wretchedness and even be casually cruel to them and still continue to go about our lives, even though this narrator was kind of planning to kill himself. But, you know, I haven't read uh, in a long time the J.D. Salinger story, A Perfect Day for Banana Fish, uh, which is also about a man contemplating suicide who has this interaction with a young girl. This story made me really want to read it and kind of compare the different ways that uh these authors are looking at depression. That's a total aside. Who knows? Maybe someone can do that and write to us on the forums. <laughs> Let's continue on with looking at this world of the dream. As we've pointed out, the narrator has really conceived of or been shown this utopia and he's there for it over the course of a thousand years, maybe thousands of years. And over the course of that time, this utopia is becoming more and more like our world. And there are spiritual reasons for this, which we pointed out in the recap, and we'll get to that. But I really want to look at the historical world history stuff that happens. Uh, I'll say this. Everything is traced back to people's ability to deceive one another in this story. Uh, and then people basically start worshiping stuff, which is at the heart of covetousness, uh, desiring what's not yours or you can't have. Those are both spiritual maladies. And uh, maybe we shouldn't quite examine those so closely as uh, what's happening in, in terms of material causes. But we do know that stuff becomes a thing and then people want what other ha others have. People start to feel shame, alliances form, and then there's mass suffering. And then the people desire suffering. And then there are ideological battles over ideas. And then people begin to want science to tell them what to do and how they can go about getting knowledge. And all of this stuff leads basically to wars. And I have to ask you, Glenn, on the material side of this, do you feel like any of this is really a convincing description of why wars are fought, why nations are built, why languages develop? What did you 
think about when you were reading this breeze through of world history from the narrator's perspective. Right. Well, it's certainly all done without any details, right? Or, you know, even <laughs> markers of time, as you you pointed out, and it's not clear even what is the scale here. But this is a real uh, pattern, or this is this is part of a real mode of of historical thinking and historical writing in the nineteenth century that is wrapped up in these new notions of progress or new notions of, of of change and thinking about change over time. And loads of scholars in this period, some of them historians, but to be honest, most of them philosophers, I, I think, are trying to explain how we have gotten this way, how the world has gotten to the way that it is, right? And are looking at then what they would call stages of history and trying to paint with really broad strokes and say, well, there was a period in which we lived this way, and then there was this change, and so then we lived a different way, and then there was another change, and so on, and trying to create a science out of that by looking back at the human past, seeing our past as a kind of laboratory for social sciences and and trying to see if we can see rules or or laws of history to help us actually shape where our society is going to go next how in what way it's going to transform or actually even evolve then becomes a, a word that that is in use in the late 19th century and certainly throughout the 20th century here in this type of thinking and in in doing this sort of thing, philosophers and, and Marx is probably the most important and and influential of them, though though actually one of the later uh, of them. Uh, people are are being really abstract in the way that they're creating these these periods of history in a way that does not sit well with what well, with me or I think any historian working today. <laughs> right, that we just don't look at the past that way. We don't believe in laws of history or anything like that. And uh, these big and and working on these big grand canvases is just not something that we do. Most of us tend to specialize in one very, very, very small thing and resist answering questions that ask us to predict anything or take lessons from uh, the way that humanity has changed over time or any of that. But people in the 19th century were obsessed with this sort of thing. And so Dostoevsky is doing exactly that here in the way that he's writing about the transformations of this the, the people on earth too. But I think he's doing it actually in a way that makes fun of people like Marx and Hegel and well, and Ranka, other people who are doing exactly this sort of thing. I, I think that he's pointing out that that's a kind of absurd idea that to tell a story about people without any actual particulars and to come up with a scheme and to try to shoehorn everything into it is kind of is kind of silly but that what's even sillier is actually to just worship the notion of change at all which is kind of at the core of everything that uh, these these types of philosophers are writing in the 19th century Right, because Dostoevsky's not actually all that interested in the the grand narrative, even though he gives us one. He's really interested in what what is the cost of the of the human soul, basically, on this sort of thing. And you know, that's gonna lead us to thinking about these these theological concepts. As I said, it's really hard to disentangle this the way Dostoevsky presents this history, which I also want to mention as an aside here, I think he's thinking about the French Revolution a lot too. And he knows there's rumblings of revolution in Russia as well. But he starts with it with people being taught in a sense to lie and to stop loving one another. 
And so the real cause for this are the individuals who are sinning in a sense. And so the root cause of these problems of history is not looking at these abstract laws, which require no theology, but instead looking at what's wrong with the heart of humankind. And so, yeah, let's look at the theological questions at play here. Uh, I think Dostoevsky is looking at the problems of humanity through two key theological concepts, though there's a lot more we can mine out of this story. One of them is explicitly mentioned in the text, and the other one is recognizable, I think, on a more implicit level, though I think it's still fairly explicit, even though I just really learned about its import as a early theological concept a couple months ago. The most explicit theological concept present in the story is that of original sin or really fallenness. And basically, this is the idea behind why there is corruption of any sort in the world, death, famine, wars, disease, sickness, you know, murder, whatever. Basically, we had a perfect world once, and then we fell away from it by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now on Earth 2 in this story, the fall never happened. And from a theological perspective, things went the way that God had really ordained from the beginning, if we're thinking theologically. But these people were still vulnerable to becoming fallen. And this idea will lead us into our, our next theological concept of the story. But I just had to get your read on this, Glenn. What we're presented with here is a theologically ideal place. People live in perfect harmony and unity with the entirety. And still, they carry around that same potential for sin, for falling short, for transgression that we have indulged in on Earth One. But it just hasn't been exposed yet. It hasn't been brought forth. And then the angel or God that takes the ridiculous man to these people seems to know that he's going to corrupt them. I am really interested in getting a sense, Glenn, of how you made, how you made sense of this weird paradox. Like how could such a people who had never fallen still be vulnerable to corruption and fallenness? Well, I'm not sure that they haven't fallen, right? I mean, I think certainly when the narrator shows up on Earth 2, they are they they have not fallen at this point. But I I think that even as you said in the the recap, right, the the narrator here is in fact the snake in the garden. He is the source of the fall. We don't get, you know, some moment here with trying to convince Eve to, you know, eat some fruit and then share it with Adam. We don't get that moment here, but his presence here is corrupting. And so that is what puts them in a state of, of fallenness as well. Though, you know, again, also we don't get, you know, God showing up and saying, hey, what what did you do? And then kicking them out <laughs> and explaining what the punishments are going to be, right? That uh, childbirth is going to be painful and that uh, you're actually going to have to work really hard now to have food and so on. We, you know, we don't get those moments, but I think that nonetheless, the the result, the effect is the is the same, right? That there is some kind of corrupter introduced into the, into their midst, and that this brings about an end to this Edenic paradise. I guess I'm wondering whether or not you felt 
that Dostoevsky or the narrator through this stream is expressing some sort of belief that God is incapable of creating people, you know, with the exception of, of Christ in the Christian tradition, is incapable of creating people who do not have the tendency to become fallen. And I wonder if you like picked up on that. It, it really struck me that that was sort of what the narrator had come across here. That fallenness is inevitable in some sense. Oh, I see. Yeah, that is that's a really interesting question. And one thing that happens here, of course, is that it's really hard to tell stories about people who are not fallen. Uh, I mean, Gene Roddenberry tried this in Star Trek: The Next Generation, <laughs> and you know, there's a big change actually in the nature of storytelling on that show when he stops having such a such a hand in it. Uh, it's a pretty you know remarkable divide actually that's often commented on by by fans, right? And uh, it, it just it's hard to write a story about people who are not fallen. It's just boring, right? We, stories are about people having some kind of conflict. At least one third of them are about pe people having conflict with one another, right? And so uh, it can be hard for writers, I think, to find a way to to tell those types of stories. But also, I think it's just difficult in the same way that it's difficult for us to envision what it would be like to just have our consciousness not exist anymore. It's really difficult to envision people who are not fallen, who don't have the types of of, of impulses and uh, desires uh, that we have and, and, and maybe just shortcomings that we have as well. So that might be part of what's going on here. But I do also want to maybe challenge a bit the the premise of your question there, Brandon, as well. And of course, there are loads and loads and loads of different understandings of what the fall is, what are the consequences of it, why it happened, and so on. Uh, because uh, the, these Abrahamic religions have lots and lots and lots of, uh, <laughs> of different sects all within, within them that have different understandings of these things. But certainly the question of, of do humans have free will is an issue that all of the Abrahamic religions and then the different varieties of those Abrahamic religions have grappled with. But I think that most of them embrace the idea that humans have free will, that that is part of our nature as God has has given it to us. And so that means that we have choice, right? And so a pessimist then might say that, well, humans are always in every scenario going to choose to fall when faced with a temptation. But I don't know that Dostoevsky necessarily believes that, right? I think that he might actually think that that, that on Earth, uh, Earth's three through uh, seven hundred and twenty-five, uh, <laughs> people people make different choices. That they you know that they have a, a different view because all of this is really serving right the narrator to come back to Earth One and say we could get back to that state and I know how if only people would listen because that's really what Dostoevsky wants readers to take from the story. He wants them to be empowered to do this as well. Well, you'll be glad to hear, Glenn, that all of this is sort of a trick question to get us talking about the next <laughs> theological <All right. laughs> concept here, <laughs> um, which I think is actually crucial. And and then I'm not, I'm not convinced that um, choosing to fall is the right phrase, you know, on Earth 3 through uh, 700 plus, because I think what Dostoevsky, one of the things he's investigating in this story and looking at is the theological concept of concupiscence. Now, we often associate this word, if we use it at all, with like carnal lust in particular, uh, which the word for that, if you're going to be describing 
carnal lust under the umbrella of concupiscence, you use cupidity. But going back to at least Augustine, uh, con- concupiscence has been used to describe the tendency of humanity to wander away from the good. And that's why I think that that line at the end of the story about the narrator saying, even if I wander, I have this living image of this dream here is, is really important to the story. Because what's happening in, in this uh, idea is that one is tempted by desire for things that are less substantive and less good than holiness or righteousness or perfect love, you know, et cetera. And so desire in this conceptualization under concupiscence is really rooted in love, which comes from the author of love, which is God. So uh, concupiscence is really not a term that is used to indicate that original sin or fallenness has made us evil at heart. Rather, it's a term that reminds us that we are creatures made to love and worship, but we aim at the wrong things. We aim at non-substantial loves and then have this tendency towards sin, which is aiming at the wrong things and is an archery term. So I'm sure, you know, theologians listening to me now are like pulling out their hair because I'm doing a five sentence pressy on this. Um, <laughs> But I want to add then that, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, if you're really comfortable calling people evil at heart, theologically speaking, um, you know, ignoring the highest good and choosing to turn away from it uh, is still a corruption of sin. So what concupiscence really speaks to is the notion that it is in our nature to aim at the wrong desires and to wander away from the true good, but it doesn't necessarily entail that our inherent nature is evil. And so I think that's why at the end of the story, we see this ridiculous man say he no longer believes that man is evil at heart. He's no longer a a cynic. And I mentioned this, also this phrase insubstantial here, less substantial things. And I think it's this lack of substance that uh, is is the result of sinning, of aiming at low goods or uh, unfulfilling loves that are really the result of desiring wrongly that lead Dostoevsky to be so critical of a religion, for instance, uh, whose aim is becoming nothing or to uh, join with nothingness. Uh, yeah, so I guess all this little pressy on, on theological concepts really should lead us to the question, Glenn, of whether or not this story is convincing in its argument that being a ridiculous person or a holy fool and bringing people into that reality is a higher calling or a better good than participating in what the ridiculous man had been engaged with in what he now views as his insubstantial society or culture. Certainly my view on this is that, uh, we're supposed to root for the the ridiculous man here, the the narrator here, and to to see that he is right and to want to live in the world that would exist if people would listen to him. I I, I think that Dostoevsky here is advocating for this type of message. That's my feeling. Is that yours? Yeah, absolutely. I'm asking you, I guess, whether or not you find it convincing in its argument. Well, I I am not 
persuaded, but perhaps in part, you know, I'm not persuaded because there aren't enough particulars for me. But uh, I think another context that we should probably bring up here, although again, this is another place where I want to say that I have no expertise on this at all, is the utopianism of, uh, well, the 19th century in particular, although utopianism is something that, uh, it's a tradition that uh, has been present since antiquity, this envisioning of a perfect human society, or maybe not a perfect necessarily, but a, a good human society that functions better than the, the one in which the writer is living. And, you know, I said 19th century at first, because the 19th century is actually a moment in which people are going out and actually founding their utopias as these types of experiments. They're actually moving uh, themselves and people who are into their idea to uh, uninhabited places and setting up communities and governing those communities according to the utopic principles of this community's founder. This is something that's been happening throughout the 19th century that I imagine Dostoevsky was well aware of, though I don't know how much of that was happening in the Russian Empire. This is something, again, that I I know of largely in the the Anglo context, though uh, though also is happening in France as well. Uh, but I imagine that Dostoevsky at least has some experience of this and has been looking at them uh, and probably finds most of them pretty, well, ridiculous, I guess, actually. Uh, <laughs> and certainly most of them have, well, actually, they all have failed. But I guess what I'm meaning to say is that certainly by this point, Dostoevsky could already look back and see uh, dozens of them that have not succeeded, that didn't last very long, although some of them did actually last into a, a second generation, but most of them did not. So I'm not quite sure you know, what exactly it is that Dostoevsky is trying to call us to action, you know, to here, he's not engaging in utopic literature in the, the specific sense of that, in that he's giving us a real like blueprint for what an ideal community would look like. He's really, I think in some ways more telling us simply that one is possible, uh, and then also framing it in religious terms. And I, you know, I think that that's, you know, those are broad brushstrokes, but he's, trying to convince us of that. And, I, you know, I don't know if I'm persuaded. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I am either. I really love the way that Dostoevsky engages with these spiritual realities. I mean, we all know that even by our own standards, we wander away from them, right? I mean, I think concupiscence is really a great, uh, it's a great theological concept if you're into that sort of thing. I don't know that it could really lead to an ideal society or community. And so I really think that this story functions best as a conversion story, as a story meant to stir some kind of moral or spiritual or ethical awakening in the reader. And I think to that effect, it works when we read about the way the narrator uh, ignores the pleas of people who need help. This child, we can probably think of examples of walking by homeless people in a city or something like that, ignoring the pleas of the wretched, things like that, that should trouble us maybe more than they do sometimes. Um, our inability to stay the course, uh, but you know, that those sorts of things. I, I do think the story really works on that level. Uh, I don't think it works on uh, as a piece of utopian literature. Uh, and I don't think it's argue and I don't think it's argument for the return to Eden is something that I really find compelling 
even on a theological level, where the trajectory of the Christian Bible isn't a return to Eden, but a move to a city. And so for me, even uh, as an argument, uh, theological argument, it doesn't quite follow that theological trajectory that I think you'd expect to see in um, a piece of religious literature, mystical literature. I should probably clarify here a little bit about uh, what I mean by utopianism, and I guess really what, what what people in general mean by utopianism. Because I think colloquially, we tend to use the word utopian or, or utopia to refer to any society that seems really good. Uh, but <laughs> that's not actually, I think, really a, a, a good and functional, precise definition of it. But that utopian literature is, or utopian experiments, as I've just been talking about, are really looking at society as it as it exists now in the the, the moment of the writing or the the decision to to actually found a new type of society, and trying to have the best of it without the worst of it, and and also trying to improve what is the best of it, but not necessarily arguing for the return to some kind of of, of previous state or some type of of condition or, or state of humanity that we don't presently have, right? Not trying to kind of put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. But there is a type of thinking that is really adjacent to utopianism. And in fact, they share a pretty big Venn diagram that I think is more properly called primitivism, which is, I think, more actually what Dostoevsky is engaging with here, which is this idea that there was a state of humanity that was not corrupt. And sometimes that's framed in terms of the fall, right? The the serpent in the garden and humanity being spiritually corrupted in that moment. But often it is actually framed, and, and by often I mean in the 19th century, although also the 18th century and 17th century as well, presented as the idea that all of the the science and and technology, all of the things that we call progress of early modernity and, and moving into high modernity, those things themselves actually are the corruption. And that what we need to do is get back to a more primitive type of existence, something that uh, a scientist would say uh, is akin to what uh, Homo sapiens uh, were doing, say, 50,000 years ago or 40,000 years ago, right? Hum humans, Homo sapiens, having developed language, but not yet having invented civilization, that that's, that's an ideal state in which we can have an egalitarian society that has plenty of leisure time uh, and that allows us to have community with one another without all of the uh, the nonsense that gets in the way of, of, of the, in, in civilization, especially in technological civilization. And there's all sorts of writing, certainly in the Western European tradition, of, of people predicting that we're going to find a society like that on one of these islands in the Pacific or some valley in unexplored Africa or unexplored South America or unexplored Australia and yearning to find that society, hypothesizing what that society would be like. And I think that that primitivism, that uh, that's really actually more what Dostoevsky is, is writing about, is advocating for here rather than utopianism, that he has this idea that it's the trappings of modernity, but not even maybe just modernity, just civilization at all, that actually are the state of corruption. And so that we can get back to some better way of living without all of this 
evil in our hearts and in our souls if we could eschew that. I, I think that that's what Dostoevsky is wanting us to do. I think that's right. And and I, you know, I wonder then if another way of looking at this story isn't just through that lens, but through questioning whether or not uh, Dostoevsky is also saying that that's impossible and hoping that these explorers don't find that place um, because they will become the the snake in the garden then, right? That we carry corruption with us. So if a place like that does exist, one, we should leave it alone. But then also maybe Dostoevsky is making an argument that a place like that cannot exist because of our tendency to wander and to aim at lower loves. And that is part of the human condition. And so I guess this is really a kind of a complex story and neither of us are really Dostoevsky scholars enough to untangle what we've just uh, tied into a knot here at the, at the end of our episode. Yeah, I feel like we are the uh, living example of uh, that moment in Billy Madison uh, where uh, uh, everyone is dumber now for having listened to us. <laughs> well, I think that's the perfect time to bow out then. So <laughs> that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. Once again, I just want to say a huge thanks for this commission. Uh, this really got us out of, I, I think was clear in the discussion episode, really got us out of our comfort zone. And that is always a good thing. And uh, Dostoevsky is just a brilliant writer. So it was great to, to have the impetus to do this and, and to have the opportunity to make time for this. And I just loved this conversation, Brandon. So uh, I'm so grateful that we got the commission for this. If you want to know what is going to be out next time, I will direct you to the calendar on the Elder Sign page at claytemplemedia.com. And until then, whatever that is, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>